0: Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Well, hello everybody, this is Murderous Roots, and I'm Denise. And I'm Zelda. Hello. Hello, lady. How you been?
1: Okay. So I have a confession. Okay. The confession is that I am addicted to TikTok. I am addicted to TikTok. And, um, you know, all the little jingles that are running around TikTok, mm-hmm. like, don't be suspicious. Don't, don't be suspicious. Okay. So literally. Happy dog. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So let me tell you, I was uh, driving my car the other day down the main road here in town and it was a little bit tight because there were like two big trucks and I'm trying to get into the turn lane and I'm squeezing between these two lanes of traffic to get where I need to be. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I'm chanting, don't be suspicious, don't be suspicious. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, TikTok has taking over my brain. That's this awesome. is bad. And yet, do I stop watching videos on TikTok? That would be no. a big no. No.
0: no. And so, so it doesn't offend you when I send you so many.
1: <laughs> no, I love that you send me videos. I love that. And I'm actually, there's one person I follow and it's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. Mm-hmm. This woman, um, she's, uh, I would say like in her maybe late 20s, early 30s, very mm-hmm. pretty, very blonde. I, I think it, her actual profession is she runs a tanning salon. Okay. Well, She started this soap opera series where she plays all the characters and it's about this man who had an affair with this woman. And um, so he and his wife get divorced and they have this girl that they're calling baby girl and she has Mr. Turtle or stuffed animal. And <laughs> I'm living through all of the stuff that's happening as they try to sort out this whole blended family thing. It's all very dramatic, and they're not Mm -hmm. very nice to Baby Girl. Mama loves Baby Girl, but the new mistress, you know, doesn't really like her partner's (laughs) child too much. And, you know, these are all, as you know, told in one minute and three minute increments, right? I'm addicted. Like, she puts out one video every day, and I'm and i like, I don't watch soap operas. I don't read bodice rippers, but I have to find out what's happening to Baby Girl and Mr. Turtle every day. (laughs) So, (laughs) I am just like... (laughs) It's sad. It's sad. I'm just going to have to own it, though. It's like TikTok is taking over my
0: brain. Did you see my latest message to you on there? The Uh, latest video I shared with you that somebody new is on TikTok. And I was Mm -hmm. so excited. Dolly Parton. Yeah. Yeah. I love her.
1: Well, and I kind of was swearing off following celebrities on TikTok Mm -hmm. just because it's like, I feel TikTok's for the masses, right? You know, mm-hmm. show me your dumb creativity things. Um, but then Dolly Parton came on. I'm like, oh, but it's Dolly Parton. And <laughs> oh, Taylor Swift. Ugh. I, and, I
0: do follow some celebrities, but they're not the bulk of what I follow. Mm-hmm. I only follow celebrities who give me interesting, funny content or something uh. that's unique. So I actually follow Ryan Reynolds. Everyone's oh, everyone's is
1: funny. Yeah. He,
0: yeah. Or, you know, but if it's just them promoting... Stuff and that's all they're doing. No. What's your
1: favorite TikTok account?
0: Besides ours. (laughs) Yeah, ours has been kind of stagnant for a couple weeks. I need to get on that. Um, Gosh, there's so many I love. I always forget the names. It's like I see them and I'm like, ooh, I love them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of the ones I follow while you're looking up is Susie Edge. And she is an historian in London who basically talks about the different way kings have died. And I am mildly addicted you
0: know <laughs> that that's that sounds like fun i i follow a lot of parents and stuff oh yeah so you know yeah, like other moms so i'm always like because i can relate to the moms you know mm-hmm. um one okay i have two favorites that they kind of have the same shtick i guess you could say and the first one is don farmer i mm-hmm. discovered her first She's British, and the first time I saw her, she was trying American candies for the first time. And then people are like, oh. "Well, you need to try this. And they sent her ranch dressing, and she tried ranch dressing, and it was like, oh, where has this been my whole life? Oh, my gosh. I follow an English guy who's doing that. Well, that that's probably I'm Josh from England.
1: Yes, that's him.
0: And I discovered him first when he was actually talking about I can't believe you women go through this stuff. Uh-huh. And I love that more than him trying the stuff, but I still love him. I mean, he's oh, yeah. pretty good. He's so but, funny. I mean, there's so many different ones and for different reasons.
1: Oh, yeah. So that's that's my confession, though, is TikTok has taken over my brain.
0: I, I get it. I have been a little busier than usual because I started volunteering at my daughter's school. Oh, God love you. Wow. Twice a week. I go in for an hour. In the first grade classroom and I help out. Um, she knows I'm a former first grade teacher. So she's already gave me with groups and working with reading stuff. And and I work with them for short bits. I mean, 15 uh-huh. minutes a time. But at least, you know, it's kind of neat being in that role. That's so nice. That's so, lovely, it,
1: actually. I bet your but, girls are happy to see you, too.
0: My two oldest never see me when I'm there because it's just one hour. But my youngest is like, oh. <gasps> she's all excited she's all like and so i've asked her well how do you like me being in your classroom i like that a lot mom Aww, i love
1: that she's
0: i do too she's the sweetheart so so back on topic oh that's right (laughs) we have a
1: podcast this is not just a catch
0: up i do have a few fun facts before we get started
1: oh i can't wait tell me tell me
0: so we haven't got any new reviews yet oh (laughs) that's okay but i'll keep looking for them so again if you leave a review and we like it. Uh, we will yeah. read it on the air. But um, I did look up some interesting information about Murderous Roots. We now have over 4,000 downloads. Actually, oh 4125, I think, is our magic number. Oh, at the my gosh. We're going to be
1: podcast famous here soon.
0: <laughs> and actually, I mean, when we first started, we got like 50 to 60 downloads mm-hmm. in two weeks. Now we're getting about 120 or more in two weeks time. That's exciting. So, you know, we're growing. Now, on the website, and I wanted to say, oh, we're heard by these places. And that hit me. No, I was looking at the website stats. Our webpage, murderousroots.com, has been visited over 8,000 times in the past year by people who live in all 50 states. Wow. Yay us. The least is Alaska with five people from there visiting us. The most is California with over 700. That's exciting. Yeah. Over People in over 99 countries, including Georgia, Mozambique, China, um, Peru, Nigeria, Israel, and Malta have visited the website as I well. I think
1: those are just my relatives. <laughs> 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 that could be.
0: Just saying. You know, my people get around. <laughs> so. and, and a quick reminder for everybody. If you didn't hear the last episode, we now have a Patreon page. We're just looking for some support and we're going to give you some stuff too. So
1: we We have merch
0: now. Yes, we do. And so you can buy merch from our website. There's links there to get to our store. And then there's a link to the Patreon page where you can just donate $3 a month to up to $20 a month. Mm -hmm. And each level has some fun stuff for our patrons.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So I'd love to have somebody get on there so I can start posting stuff.
1: Dig deep to your own murderous roots.
0: Yes. And actually, that's one of those things. Um, I opened up a store, as Zelda knows, where um, if you want to hire me to get into your roots, you can do that. Yeah. So,
1: I think that's very cool you're doing that. And yeah. and I can testify, the woman can find stuff. I mean, because you've done a little bit with mm-hmm. my family tree. Yeah. And I was amazed at what you were able to find.
0: I try. And I've done trees for a couple other people. I mean, not just you. And Mm -hmm. right now, this weekend, I was actually working on one of those people. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, your tree's such a mess. And if she listens to this, she's not going to be offended. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, because she knows. And it wasn't just her tree. It was just her immediate family just getting to her grandparents. It's a mess. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And she's like, yeah, you know, we're the trailer trash family of...
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. No offense to people
0: who live in trailers. There's a certain, some people in trailers are great. Then there's the trailer trash. Oh, my gosh. Oh, and, and you know, the fact that she came out respectable is how I told her. <laughs> is actually pretty miraculous given the mess that is her family. She actually has a murderer in her family.
1: D- don't we all, though, really? Well, this one,
0: <laughs> this one was executed by lethal injection.
1: Oh, my God. So, fairly yeah. recently then. Yeah, in
0: 1990. It was oh her God. half great grand uncle.
1: So, are we going to feature him at some point?
0: We might. I'm not sure. Just for goodness. That one's kind of, you know. <laughs> we might. She, about, she actually mentioned we could do that.
1: Tell us about your murderous relatives.
0: Yeah. You know? and, so and that's, if we do, that's though, a way for
1: them to find out their roots, though, is if we picked their person, then they get a free, free family yeah. tree kind of thrown in. You know, yep. <laughs> maybe this is how we need to market
0: ourselves. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so today we're back to our regular episodes, regular length and everything. And oh my gosh, there's so much on my end, at least. Yeah. And there's a lot to sort through. I know on Zelda's end and Zelda, we're going to start off and you're going to tell us all about serial killer from Indiana, your home state. <laughs> Larry Eiler. So this guy does give Hoosiers a bad name, I have mm-hmm. to say. And
1: um, it was actually a little bit chilling as I was reading about Larry Eiler because he's they're talking about towns that I've either lived in,
0: mm-hmm.
1: knew, had friends in, went to, you know, like when we're talking about Terre Haute, I went to more than one frat party there. And um, fortunately, rather after he had been captured, right. but it was one of those things just to see that, and the evil that was happening it just it's shocking it's absolutely shocking and there's just i I have to admit this was hard to get my arms around part of it was because i I, I just gonna sound weird i have a certain amount of sympathy for larry eiler i can see that because he was a gay man a gay man in indiana and you know i I don't know if you knew this but in indiana it was illegal to be gay until like 1977 Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: i want to say it was until 1960 you can get the death penalty I mean, Dang. it was like for sodomy, you know, and it was just kind of like, in fact, I think it was the final, the sodomy laws got struck down in like 1977. And of course you couldn't have a same sex marriage partner, um, until 2014. So, Jeez. and even today, Indiana is not particularly gay friendly. No, I, I could tell you so many stories of people I know who had many problems in Indiana and, mm-hmm. um, because they were gay and so so this is my sympathy for him he grew up of course you know like so many of the people we talk about an incredibly abusive home so there's Mm -hmm. you know that layered on that however loads of people have this exact same history and yet managed to not become serial killers or killers of any sort actually or abusive people of any sort so i understand that you know understand my sympathy is tempered with the real and true knowledge that he was evil, you know, right. And not insane. He does not seem to actually have been insane. Cause I really wanted to like, okay, well he's just crazy. No, he wasn't crazy. He was cruel, you mm-hmm. know? So where do we even start? So we, you know, I'm just going to gloss over the whole childhood thing because, you know, okay. he was abused. We've heard this story. His mother was married something like four times or something like that. And I'll get it into seems that. like the stepdads were super abusive and, You know, he left home as soon as he possibly could. Um, Mm -hmm. He was in the boys' schools a couple of times. And it just, he had a very unstable childhood. The way his, you know, road to fame starts is that somewhere in his, he was a teenager when he realized that, okay, my sexual orientation is being homosexual. Mm -hmm. And he was living in Indianapolis and he started kind of delving into the gay community. And so he was making friends. You know, having lots of partners, as one does when you're a young teenage man with no right. fetters on you, <laughs> you know, whether you're gay or not.
0: Yeah. Typical male.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. His criminality has nothing to do with him being gay, except that the way he chose his victims. Right. You know? And that's probably a lot of what kept him from actually getting caught for a while. He was known among, he was actually pretty well known among the gay community in mm-hmm. Indianapolis. He also was, I don't think he's actually living in Indianapolis. He was living in Terre Haute with a professor at Indiana State named David Little. And I didn't realize at first that he was a library science professor. So he was a librarian. Oh, <laughs> David Little. Uh, but he was very well known because he got around in the circles in Indianapolis at the gay community. And he was known for, Kind of being into little BDSM, you know, which not going to judge between consenting adults. Whatever mm-hmm. happens, happens. Well, his road to perdition kind of officially started on August third, nineteen seventy-eight, when he picked up a nineteen-year-old hitchhiker named Craig Long in Terre Haute. So Long hops in the truck. Eiler propositions him. Long's like, "Uh, yeah, no, that's not my thing. I, I'm just, I just need a ride." And Eiler didn't like that, so he basically bound up the kid, ended up stabbing him. The The kid, uh, he was 19, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say kid, the young man pretended mm-hmm. to be dead, and that's the only reason he lived. Eiler was charged with aggravated battery, and he agreed to plead guilty. But get this, the judge set his bond at $10,000, friends gave him the money, he was released on bail, and then Eiler's lawyers offered the victim a check for $2,500 to so $2,500 if he agreed to not press charges. So Damn. he agreed to not press charges and long, uh, I'm sorry. And then Eiler changed his plea to not guilty. And, sa- and then he was acquitted since the victim would not press charges.
0: I got a quick question. Do you know who hired sure. his attorney for him?
1: Yes, Robert Little did. Oh, okay. His partner, Robert Little, which the partner sense. thing isn't like... They were platonic in the sense they weren't really having sex with each other, but occasionally they would, he would bring home a guy who would have sex with both of them. Mm. So it got complicated and I didn't want to delve in too much because I don't, you know, I'm a prude at heart. I don't want to know about people's sex lives any more than I have to.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So long, I'm sorry, Robert Little actually underwrote Eiler in a lot of ways. I mean- Letting him live there rent free, bailing him out of jail, hiring the attorneys later on. So I would definitely say that Professor Little probably was in love with Eiler as much as, you know, as anything. And for mm-hmm. some reason, Eiler chose for it to not be a couple. There's actually a, a book that goes pretty in depth to all of that. Okay. Um, I didn't get the chance to read it, but I think it's, it's interesting because the relationship is so complex because at the same time, That he's, he has this relationship with Little. He has a relationship with a 20-year-old married man named John Dobrovolskis. Dobrovolskis. John (laughs) Dobrovalskis. I know that's hard. He was married, two kids, and three foster children living in Chicago, Illinois. Now, here's the thing that I don't, 20 years old and has three foster children and two (laughs) of their own children. I'm like, there's a story there. Yeah. Now, Uh Dobrovolsky's wife understood her husband was homosexual, kind of averted her gaze and, you know, let him do his thing. Right. However, we're just going to call him John because it's easier to say. John and Eiler together were actually rather violent toward each other, Mm. not just during the sex stuff, but they were constantly fighting. And a couple of times John actually hit Eiler, like punched him. But Eiler never did anything back. And so it was really weird. And even Eiler would even stay at their house if he was working in Chicago. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just like, it was just kind of strange. Right. Right. So during this time, okay, so we're talking between 1982 and 1984. We know now that Larry Eiler is known to have committed a minimum of 21 murders and one attempted murder. Wow. That's a lot. All of them. Yeah. And,
0: and a short time period. In two years. Too. Yeah. Two
1: years. Yeah. So it basically amounts to about one a month. I mean, if you do like the math. Mm-hmm. And all of them basically binding, stabbing, disemboweling a few of them. Um, sometimes they were so brutalized that they were almost unrecognizable. And his final victim was a 16 year old boy who had been working as a male prostitute since he, the age of 12. And I mean, to me, this is, this is the most heartbreaking thing. Um right. Is that there was this poor child who'd obviously had a crap life up to this point mm-hmm. is lured by this killer to his house is victim, you know, is horribly abused before death and then dismembered and put into separate bags and, you know, thrown away mm-hmm. like trash. However, that's the murder that Larry Eiler made the mistake with. So Larry Eiler, um, up to this point, you know, the police in Indiana were pretty damn pissed that this guy got off. Right, And when they realized like, wait, there's other murders that seem to be kind of linked to this. There was an investigative journalist who was involved. Uh, Ger- uh, Geraldine Kolarik um, mm-hmm. was really kind of like, hey, there's like, a lot of similarities between a lot of these deaths and the gay community had informed the police, the gay, several people from the gay community in Indianapolis had informed police. We think it's this guy because let, us tell you our experiences with this man in our community and people who went home with him and how rough the sex got non-consensually. So his first arrest after the attempted murder Mm -hmm. was in Lowell, Indiana on September 30th, 1984. And both he and the hitchhiker were arrested and detained for questioning because he had just picked up a hitchhiker. He was initially being detained on charges of soliciting a, a young male for sexual purposes. And the reason they thought that is because they did an unwarranted search of his car and found nylon rope and some other things that made them extremely suspicious. So the, he eventually consented to an investigator's request to conduct a forensic examination of his vehicle, took copies of his fingerprints, and agreed to take a polygraph test at a later date.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So they did this unwarranted search. There were some other problems with what the police had done. They knew they had their guy, but he was, um, he was released because mm-hmm. they, they did unconstitutional searches. And so oh. he had to be released. Well, four weeks after his release from custody, he permanently relocated to Chicago, which is why I thought it was interesting that in the articles that you sent me, Denise, he's referenced right. as you know Larry Eiler of Chicago, and I'm like, he's not of Chicago, although they could take him if they want him. Um, <laughs> but he'd been there four weeks, yeah. <laughs> so but technically that was his permanent residence, so that's what they said. Right. But while he was living there, he lured this 16-year-old Daniel Bridges, who is the young sex worker that he dismembered so a janitor found the garbage bags i can't even imagine how shocking that oh my had gosh. To be.
0: i gotta tell you that's one of my fears is that i'm gonna find i when i see um garbage bags on the side of the road is that there's a body uh-huh. and i'm gonna find it
1: yeah like i have no desire <laughs> to find a body ever ever brainy either you'll And so janitor reported it to the police. Mm -hmm. Several other janitors said, Hey, we remember seeing Larry Eiler, who's our new tenant, put some bags into that dumpster. Hey. So then the police were on that, like that.
0: Mm -hmm. And we're like, Larry,
1: finally, maybe. And finally they were able to make some charges stick. And he was prosecuted for um, young bridges murder. He was actually convicted. The interesting thing is he actually, because he was insolvent and he had public defenders, he had a third person who offered to do it pro bono. And it turned out that guy was getting paid under the table by Professor Little, who was still, you know, paying the bills of Larry Eiler, no matter where he happened to be in the country. The jury deliberated for three hours before returning their verdict. He was found guilty of aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint and murder of Daniel Bridges in addition to the concealment of the teenager's body. Mm. They decided that the sentence originally was supposed to be death. I'm going to read you what the judge said during the sentencing. The senseless and barbaric murder of a 16 year old boy, a killing, which was so brutal that it defies description shows me your complete disregard for human life. If ever there was a person or situation for which the death penalty is appropriate, it is you you are an evil person. Mm -hmm. You truly deserve to die for your acts. I thereby sentence you to death for the murder of Danny Bridges committed during the course of his aggravated kidnapping. He was then transferred to Pontiac Correctional Center and he was incarcerated on death row. He filed various and sundry appeals. He was initially supposed to be executed on March 14th, 1990. Mm -hmm. Now on December 13th, he pleaded guilty to a second murder of Stephen Agen. Mm-hmm. And he testified that his friend, Robert Little, had been a knowing and willing participant in the murder.
0: That's not a huge shock, given his defense and yeah. financial support.
1: I, I do wonder about this, but it's, it's interesting. So Eiler then received a sentence of 60 years imprisonment on December 28th to be served concurrently with his existing sentence. So somewhere along there, the death penalty had been commuted, but I can't figure out where, hmm. like when that actually happened. I'm sure it was during one of the many appeals, but I Probably. couldn't really find anything. And honestly, it's so convoluted. I might have been told 15 times and I just can't seem to make the connection. <laughs> I, I understand. <laughs> but his friend Little, who was 53 at the time, was arrested on December 18th, formally charged facing a sentence of 60 years imprisonment if convicted um he was eventually um acquitted um mm. there was barely the only proof that he had been there was eiler saying he was and there was a lot of reason you know in his twisted mind to actually you know
0: and he could have been telling the truth but without it. the evidence you can't really convict yeah. somebody right
1: and so after all of those appeals and all of that, Larry Eiler died in the infirmary of Pontiac Correctional Center on March 6th, 1994. His death was due to AIDS related complications. And he had been seriously ill for maybe 10 days prior to his death. Mm-hmm. I personally don't think he really suffered enough, but mm-hmm. there we have it. So while he was alive, he had, I don't know if you would call her a friend. She was his attorney, but then you know, it seemed to be a little more involved than a normal attorney. Um, But basically, he had confessed to her the deaths of 20 other people and gave details. And um he gave her permission that after he died, she could release this information. And so at least the families and friends of those 20 young men would have some kind of closure. But again, he was only ever convicted of two people out of mm-hmm. the, you know, 23 people that he harmed that we know he harmed right because i have no doubt there are other there are other attempts that probably because you know to come forward as a gay man in the 80s in indiana to say i was attacked by another gay man the police would probably not do anything about it and probably arrest you for admitting you were gay
0: i mean to come out in the 80s for any location except for maybe san francisco Mm -hmm. would be daring back in the 80s especially indiana well and other like very conservative states so it would be even worse Mm -hmm. i'm impressed i gotta say i am impressed that he came out to his family as a teenager yeah yeah i mean Mm -hmm. that i mean coming out back then especially i mean it's still not easy for a lot of people today but back then it was yeah really yeah a lot more closeted people back then Mm -hmm. So there must have been some support and goodness in the family to a certain degree.
1: I don't know what his relationship was like with his siblings. Mm -hmm. I get the impression it wasn't super close with his mother, but I don't really know.
0: I have the opposite impression with his mother, but we'll get to that in a little bit. You
1: probably know more about his mom than I do because I don't know much about her at all other than, you know,
0: stuff that's in articles. One of his victims, and we brought this up um, on the... Hell's Bell's episode about Belle Gunness Uh was her distant nephew, Michael Bauer. And that's how we discovered this case to cover.
1: Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm.
0: I completely forgot about it. That's okay. I'm sorry.
1: That's right. Mm -hmm. And he was only 22. Yeah. Um, He was was killed in
0: 1983. Yep. Another young one. Oh,
1: my gosh.
0: And they suspected him then. They suspected Eiler Mm -hmm. when they found the body. They just had problems connecting certain things. Yep. Well, you did an excellent job as usual, Zelda.
1: I appreciate the pat on the head because I just feel like, oh, my gosh. I mean, all the stories are convoluted, Mm -hmm. but this one in particular, because he had, I mean, I find it odd how he must have been terribly charismatic to have friends who literally followed him to their own detriment, you know? And, you know, use their own money to continue bailing him out. I don't even know that they necessarily believed he was innocent. You know, it was just more like he's our friend. You know, he might deserve this, but we're still going to try and get him out of it. You know, it's just, I don't know. But I'm fascinated to see what his family tree looks like after all of this.
0: His tree, Well, we'll get there because it's it's fascinating. And I took a few quick notes while you were talking on some things that You didn't get to because you had so much as it was, and it might tie more into what I have to say. Because his childhood was effed up. It just was. And it's even more complicated than even you know from the articles you read, because I noticed that most articles discussed only his mother. Mm -hmm. And they rarely mention his father, except Mm -hmm. to suggest or otherwise say that the father was an abusive alcoholic. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, this omission could be due to the father having died before Larry's crimes. It's hard to know for certain. But I'm sure his father played a role. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so some quick things that you did get to, you know, abusive father, apparently a couple of abusive stepfathers, which did not help. One of the stepfathers I read um, liked to put his head under hot scalding water. Yeah. Yeah, it's god-awful. He, you know, he went to the boys' home, as you mentioned. He was active in school sports, which is interesting. But the one part that I found the most fascinating that you did not mention is that he came very close. Well, actually, he did. He joined a Canadian monastery for a very brief time right after high school. He was going to be a monk. Really? Yes, because the family was very Catholic. I did not know this. Yes. And my, I wonder if it's because he was gay. He was trying to be true to mm-hmm. not, you know, not engaging in a relationship with anybody and trying to be faithful to the faith. Mm-hmm. But he left after a short time. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. But Thank I've got God. to tell you. Could you imagine? Yeah. Wow. I mean, and it, it, you think his childhood was theft up. I got to tell you though, Zelda, not only was Larry's immediate family have a twisted and complicated background, but his whole tree is something else. There was so much I had to decide what to actually include. Wow. But this tree does have a lot of interesting stories, tragedy, and more murder. Oh, my God. Yes. In fact, I spent so much time going through the Eiler side, the paternal line, and found so much I almost forgot to research Larry's maternal line. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Actually, I did forget. That's unlike you. You're very thorough. Yeah. I did forget until I went to write this up about a month ago when we were going to go see each other and we were going to record two episodes. And I realized I wasn't done. (laughs) Oh, my
1: gosh. I
0: scrambled to get a fairly complete tree. I figured I had more than enough. So, I don't know about you. um, But as a kid, I loved hearing how my parents met and fell in love and got married. At Mm -hmm. least the romantic in me it's always been clear to my sister and me that our parents love each other deeply we are lucky in that way because there's so many pa- um, people who don't necessarily have that mm-hmm. but i believe in an odd way that we were privileged because of that why do you know is that wasn't necessarily the case for larry's parents <laughs> larry's parents george howard eiler jr and shirley phyllis kennedy were both born in crawfordsville indiana a community of just ten thousand and it's about 45 minutes northwest of Indianapolis. George was born in 1924, Shirley in 1928. Home to Wabash College, by the way, um, an all-male school. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) I did not know that. Nice little nugget. George and Shirley likely knew each other growing up. They came from families with deep roots in Montgomery County, the county where they resided. The couple would marry at St. Bernard's Catholic Church on July 1, 1946. This was after George's enlistment with the U.S. Army during World War II came to an end. But from the beginning, it seems the marriage was troubled. Even with the tumult, the couple managed to have four children, three boys and one girl, the first in 1948 and the last in 1952, and that last one was Larry, the youngest. I found an article from the Star Press dated May 8, 1994, and it was basically an interview with Shirley after the death of Larry. In it, it notes that Larry's two older brothers were educators. One at a junior high and the other at a community college. The one at the community college was a chef teaching how to cook. Hmm. Um, And his sister was a probation officer. Oh, no. Yes.
1: Oh, my gosh. That had to be awful.
0: Yeah. Most telling was Shirley's description of herself. I was a spoiled child who married at 18, who had little discipline, and was unprepared for four children in six years. I was emotionally insecure to the degree that I sometimes turned to drink and men as a solution. Mm. So I think his mom was very Mm self-aware by this point in her life. Shirley left George around 1955 when Larry was only two. So after the divorce or the separation, Shirley often had to work two jobs just to make ends meet. Working days and nights, working weekends. And this is why... A good part of the reason the kids didn't see mom that often. Mm -hmm. While George, her ex-husband, remarried right away in April 1955. Interesting. He remarried to Maxine Alice Johnson, a marriage that would last until his death in 1971. Shirley would marry three more times. The first being Lloyd Truxton Major in 1957, a man 13 years her senior, and the marriage lasted less than a year. Wow. Now, it's possible he's the one who did the scalding water, mm-hmm. but he would be have been doing that to a, like a five-year-old, six-year-old child. But I think oh it's goodness. more likely it was John Maxwell Johnson in 1965 okay. who w- was her second husband. But again, he would have been 13, so he might not have been as easy. So it's it's hard to know which one for sure. But her last husband was Irving Deckoff in 1975. Shirley met Irving, a New York native, in 1974, and they married in Florida. Irving was unlike her first three husbands. He was worldly and educated. It's too bad she hadn't met him while Larry had been younger, much less his siblings, because mm-hmm. Irving seemed to have been a good man. Irving was born Abraham Irving Deckhoff in Buffalo, New York, and was just five years Shirley Sr., Prior to meeting, he lived in New York City with his wife, Belle, working as a celebrated fencing coach at Columbia University from 1952 to 1967. Yeah. In 1958, he was elected as the president of the National Fencing Coaches Association, and he held that role for two years. Not only was he Columbia's fencing coach, but he also taught fencing to opera students at Juilliard. And he taught at Juilliard from 1947 to 51 and 1956 to 1962. In 1960, Irving traveled to Rome for the Olympics, but not to compete. He went to interview athletes, coaches, trainers, and more as part of his doctoral research that's he got interesting. His, yeah. He got his PhD in physical education from Columbia in 1962.
1: They offered a PhD in phys ed in 1962. They did. They were kind of progressive and ahead of their time.
0: Yeah. They yeah. they were in a lot of different ways mm-hmm. um, because, and this is something I didn't write down, but I did read, he actually got promoted eventually to becoming the Dean of Students. Oh, really? And that's he was cool. the first head of student affairs at the university at the time. And student affairs was still kind of new. And in fact, there were some protests at the school against him being appointed or anybody being in that role. Really? Why? I think the students were perceiving as, well, they're going to tell us what to do. And, you know, as students, and we should make our ch- own choices, not realizing. Oh, wow. What, yeah, it's a whole oh, different time. It was a time of protest back then. Yeah, like they're huh. not going to treat us like adults that we are type of thing. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Now there's more I could share on him, but I'll save that for our Patreon page for those who are curious. I have a few articles about him. This podcast episode can only go so long. <laughs> so um, the marriage between Irving and Shirley would last close to 40 years. Wow. with Irving dying just one month before their 40th anniversary. Wow. Shirley died 11 months after Irving in 2016. Oh, my gosh. So they were very close. And I think it was with her marriage with him Mm -hmm. that she healed and probably developed more of a relationship with her children. Mm -hmm. That's my guess.
1: Thank God he was there when her son was putting the whole family through all this craziness. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just I mean... had to be a stabilizing influence on everyone else
0: yeah there's a quote in the journal and courier from the 4th of november 1983 Mm -hmm. um saying this is from um shirley saying he's never had a father until irving and wow you know and of course she didn't he didn't give him as a father until he was an adult yeah and that's so sad on so many levels
1: Do you know which Journal and Courier it was? Was it the Evansville Journal and Courier or the Louisville? I believe
0: it's the Evansville.
1: Okay. Just a shout out for Evansville. Most of the papers
0: I got were um, from Indiana. Okay. Not all, but most. And most articles I read, as well as Wikipedia, Larry was said to have only three siblings. This is not exactly true. He only had three full siblings. Oh, so while Shirley struggled to find a good, stable relationship and had no more children, the same couldn't be said for Larry's father George. George and his second wife Maxine would have two children of their own. Wow! And it seems likely that George adopted at least one, if not two, of Maxine's children from her first marriage. Oh wow! I say this because in George's obituary these children were listed the, the children were listed as all his children. Not only that, but the obituary for Larry's oldest brother listed Maxine's children as his siblings. Interesting. And these children also used Eiler as their last name. Wow. Now, Maxine had been divorced from a man by the name of Jewel Varville twice before marrying George. So I don't know what was up with that, but anyhow. So Larry's. Wait, up having, hold the
1: phone. Did you say twice divorced from the same man? Yeah, she
0: married Larry once, got divorced, married him again. I mean, Jewel, he mar- she married Jewel once, got divorced, and then married him again and got divorced again. Huh. There's got to be a story. There's got to be. At least I found two marriage records. Uh, I'm assuming there was two divorces associated. Yeah. <laughs> Fair point there. <laughs> um, so Larry had seven siblings, three full, two half, and two step, or at least adopted. Okay. Wow. So We'll quickly discuss one of Maxine's children from her first marriage. Alan Douglas Eiler. Alan was born in 1947 an early boomer. Huh. Ah. As such, he either enlisted or was drafted into the US Army to fight during Vietnam, which is pretty common for male boomers back at the time. He ended up serving in the 1st Aviation Battalion in the 1st Infantry Division, a helicopter pilot.
1: Okay, that's kind of sexy. <laughs>
0: Then in April 1969, the helicopter he was flying collided with another in South Vietnam near Quang Lu. Both helicopters crashed and burned. He did not make it home.
1: Oh, that's really sad.
0: Yeah, that is sad. All of Larry's other siblings are still living save one. His oldest brother, George, who passed away at the age of 60 of cirrhosis of the liver in 2008. Mm. And I will say, I did kind of look into his living siblings, Mm -hmm. and they all seem to have happy families and good family lives, at least on the surface. Okay. So, hopefully that's true. I I hope that's what their lives are, because I'm sure this did not help matters. Now, could you
1: imagine? I mean, seriously, let's take a a moment here. Take a moment. Mm -hmm. And you're married to your lovely husband. And let's say he gets a call one day, and it's like, hey, Yeah. So it turns out my brother is a serial killer and, um, they're going to need money to like pay for lawyers and stuff like that. And, um, I'm, I'm not really sure what we should do. I mean, how would you even react?
0: Right. I I wouldn't know how to react. Yeah. Yeah. That. Of course, knowing me, I'd be like going, hmm, I didn't see that one coming. Or I'd be like, oh, I always wondered about him. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I
1: just I think about sometimes some of the folks who are kind of on the periphery of these who are yet Mm -hmm. still fully affected. I mean, if you're married to somebody whose brother is a serial killer, you're involved whether you want to be or not, you know? Oh,
0: yeah. And then, yeah. Especially if you have the same last name. If they're all still in Indiana, then that word got and around. And they're all in this smaller community that everybody's spent time in. They all, everybody knows them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I get that. Now, because of the sheer amount of information I have, we may go about this next part a little differently than in the past. Mm-hmm. Our focus will be on the stories I found more than just the lineage. But okay. we will do the lineage a little bit. So we're going going up his mother, Shirley's line. The furthest I was able to go back before stopping was to Larry's seventh great grandparents, Henry Pearson Jr. and his wife, Eunice, both born around 1715 in New Jersey. And that family would move west to Ohio before settling in Montgomery County, Indiana by the 1830s.
1: Really? That's interesting. They were early settlers.
0: They were. And when I say this family had deep roots in Montgomery County, I'm not kidding. Wow. At least parts of the families, I should say, because mm-hmm. not all the lines are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, Shirley was the youngest child born to Lee Albert Kennedy and Minnie Dorcas Carr. Minnie was born in London, Kentucky in 1893.
1: Please reassure me that, please reassure me she doesn't get murdered because her name's Minnie.
0: I know. I, I She didn't get murdered. This Minnie ends up being safe. Whew, okay, thank
1: you. I was worried.
0: <laughs> by the time she was 17 her family moved to montgomery county where she would meet lee a local the couple married in 1913 and had their first child 10 months later gladys aileen gladys aileen had a happy normal life from all i could tell she married and had two children one of which was Anne lee walter born in pope county illinois in 1940 i bring Anne, larry's first cousin up because i found a wonderful profile on her in the star press on may 22nd 1983 titled who says chicago is preferable to muncie oh i love that that's great and it's a rather lengthy article so i won't read the whole thing <laughs> but i will post it on the website um but Anne at the time worked for the social security administration and used the article as an opportunity to explain changes happening at that time and what i did find interesting though was her path to muncie indiana After high school, she went to college at Marquette University in Milwaukee, studying English and American history. Then she got a job teaching high school history, first in Milwaukee, then Southern California. I don't know why she went to California. She didn't say. This clearly did not satisfy Anne as she signed up for the Peace Corps in 1970 so she could teach English in the Philippines. Oh, my gosh. Talk
1: about different ends of the spectrum.
0: Yes. (laughs) Wow. So she got a Peace Corps fellowship after her time in the Philippines to study more American history at Indiana University. Woohoo! Oh.
1: Go Bloomington! Yeah!
0: <laughs> However, she couldn't find any more teaching jobs, oh. which I found interesting, in history. So she got a job with Social Security at the urging of her older brother. Oh. She was first assigned to Cook County, Illinois, but left for greener pastures of Muncie. ha!
1: <laughs> Home of Ball State and the David Letterman Stadium.
0: And, you know, it's a college town, so it probably was a great place to be. I've never been to Muncie, though. Anne never married nor had children. She died six years ago in Minnesota. Now, Shirley also had three brothers, Lauren, George, and Master Sergeant Keith Kennedy. And she had a half-sister. You see, Minnie was not Lee's first wife, nor would she be his last wife. Wow. Wow. Yeah, in 1908, at the age of 18, Lee married Artie Irene Razor. Eight months later, Artie gave birth to their daughter, Clara Louise.
1: Ah, oh, I see why they got married.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I think that one's a little bit more apparent than others. The couple separated by 1910, so it was a very brief marriage. And clearly only because she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Both would remarry and have long marriages. Minnie died at age 53 in 1946. Her cause of death was listed as possible brain stem tumor.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah. Lee would marry one last time to Jenny McClure. He died in 1961 at the age of 70 of colon cancer. Wow. Now, before I go back to the um, grandparents and great grandparents, I want to discuss an incident that happened involving Larry's second cousin, Carol Ann Kennedy. An incident I'm sure he knew about at the time. Well, I would think you would have known because it's his mom's side of the family and that's who was, he was with. <laughs> um, for some quick background, Lee's parents were George Amos Kennedy and Stella May Lee, both from Montgomery County. They married in 1889 and had son Lee eight months later. Hmm. There's a pattern. They're all Catholics, you know.
1: <laughs> the enthusiastic I, couple can get started. Really enthusiastic,
0: cool. yes. I believe the couple either didn't try for more kids or found themselves unable to have more for a long time because they wouldn't have their second and last child, Marcus Avon, or Mo as he was called, until eleven years after their first. Oh wow. In nineteen oh one. So Mo, their second son, had two sons. Mo had two sons, James and Russell. James would marry Bibita Coria in 1947 at Butler University. Is that, did you say Bibita?
1: Bebita. B-E-B-I-T? Oh, that's
0: B-E-B-I-T-A. a great B-I-T-A. name. Bebita, yeah. Nice. And have two sons and two daughters, one of which was Carol Ann, their oldest girl born in 1949, where they lived in Noblesville, Indiana. Hmm. Then one morning, they woke up shocked to discover their young teen daughter dead. Oh. <gasps> Oh, no. Her death shocked and saddened the community. How could a young, healthy person die in her sleep? According to her death certificate, the coroner came to the conclusion that Carol Ann had convulsions while she slept and choked on her own vomit.
1: Oh my God. That poor girl.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think about that poor family, too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And the outpouring of support in the papers in Noblesville was huge.
1: I can imagine.
0: Oh my so. gosh. Now we're going to go back a little further. Um, So Larry's grandmother, Minnie, was the daughter of Marion Jefferson Carr, originally from Virginia, and Elizabeth Solomon. Elizabeth was the daughter of Benjamin Franklin Solomon and his first wife, Alice, or Elsie Day. Nice. And Elizabeth was born in Bulls Gap, Tennessee. Love the name. I do too. Benjamin and Alice married in eighteen sixty then in 1861 the civil war began alice was pregnant with elizabeth at the time giving birth that september then on december 1st 1862 benjamin enlisted as a union soldier in company b of the fourth tennessee cavalry before he could really begin he found himself ill at a hospital in louisville kentucky by february 1863 he was out and about fighting again by april 1863 (laughs) The timeline's a little important. We'll get to that. In the meantime, at their home in Bulls Gap, Tennessee, in September 1863, Alice died. Mm -hmm. And I I wouldn't be surprised if if she was pregnant and died in childbirth. I don't know the cause of her death. But Elizabeth was just two years old. I imagine she lived with relatives until Benjamin could return home, which would not be for a long while. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: A reminder, Elizabeth would have been Larry's great-grandmother. So her father, Benjamin, was seeing lots of death around him. Then on July 31, 1864, he was listed missing in action near the Chattahoochee River during the Atlanta campaign. Mm. According to prisoner of war records, Benjamin was captured in Franklin, Georgia, and placed in the Andersonville POW oh. camp, oh, no. one of the most shocking and horrific prison camps from the Civil War. At the time he was captured, there were close to 32,000 prisoners at Andersonville. Oh my gosh. And let's talk about Andersonville.
1: Oh no, it's an awful place.
0: It was, it was horrific. I mean, horrific doesn't even put it. I mean, that's like, feels mild. Mm -hmm. Andersonville was commanded by Captain Heinrich Hartmann Wirtz, or Captain Henry Mm Wirtz. He enlisted as a private in 1861 and had moved his way up the chain of command, To captain and head of the camp by february 1864 when andersonville first opened so andersonville was only open for 14 months a short time in the grand scheme but the impact was huge Mm -hmm. by the time benjamin arrived the camp held over four had over four times its capacity so to say it was overcrowded would be an understatement it was not only overcrowded it had atrocious conditions an inadequate water supply, unsanitary conditions, and not enough food for the prisoners. Mm -hmm. During the whole time it was open, 45,000 soldiers would come to the POW camp as prisoners. Mm -hmm. Only 32,000 would survive, Mm -hmm. meaning that 29% of the prisoners died at Andersonville. On Wikipedia, I found the following description from a former prisoner, Sergeant Major Robert H. Kellogg. As we entered the place, a spectacle met our eyes that almost froze our blood with horror and made our hearts fail within us. Before us were forms that had once been active and erect, stalwart men, now nothing but mere walking skeletons, covered with filth and vermin. Many of our men, in the heat and intensity of their feeling, exclaimed with earnestness, Can this be hell? God protect us and all thought that he alone could bring them out alive from so terrible a place. In the center of the whole way was a swamp, occupying about three or four acres of the narrowed limits, and a part of this marshy place had been used by the prisoners as a sink. Mm. An excrement covered the ground, the scent arising from which was suffocating. Oh my gosh. And there are actually some books out there that um, have journals from survivors from Andersonville. At the end of the war, Captain Wirtz would be tried and found guilty of war crimes. He was sentenced to death and hanged on November 10, 1865. But what happened to Benjamin Solomon, Larry's second great-grandfather? What could he do? Mm -hmm. Many prisoners attempted escape, even faking death. According to Confederate records, only 351 prisoners managed to escape. So Benjamin did what he needed to survive and return home. At Andersonville, he enlisted in Company F of the 10th Tennessee Infantry for the Confederacy. Wow. Yeah. I can only imagine what led to his enlistment, but I can't blame him one bit when all he wanted to do was live Mm -hmm. and survive, he did. According to a book written by D. Brown, The Galvanized Yankees, six members of the 10th deserted on December 27th, 1864, and made their way to enemy lines where they told the commanders that there was a large number of former Union soldiers there that would likely not resist a Union attack. So the next day, Benjamin and about 252 other former Andersonville POWs were captured at the Battle of Egypt Station in Egypt, Mississippi. From there, he and the others were sent to Alton, Alton? Illinois. Yeah! Our favorite prisoner of war camp. (laughs) Yes. Arriving sometime in January 1865 on march seventeenth, 1865 benjamin once more enlisted in the union
1: isn't this our number four person we've come across
0: i believe it is we should yes. start a tally i know? have a—I actually have a database i've created for the military so okay. i can keep track of stuff and i can look it up in a little while but um this time he enlisted with a catch-all unit the fifth u.s volunteer infantry Benjamin served seven more months, mustering out in October 1865 at Fort Kearney, Nebraska. Mm. Finally, he was able to go home. Within two years, Benjamin would marry on June 22nd, 1867 to Catherine Pitts. They would have 10 children of their own, three girls and seven boys. Wow. So Elizabeth would end up having 10 half siblings. Oh my gosh. FYI, I have pictures of Elizabeth... A picture of Elizabeth as well as her father, Benjamin, that I'll post on the website. Wow. So check it out. Murdersroots.com. Okay. <laughs> so, and that's just the maternal line. Maybe we
1: should come up with a jingle.
0: Murdersroots.com. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. I'll just I'll, take yours and we'll do that. I'll work on that. <laughs> okay. So if you thought that was interesting, just wait, because now we get to the paternal line and there is so much. I am riveted and have my popcorn at the ready. (laughs) You got to share that popcorn. Unfortunately, (laughs) you're a couple hundred miles, but whatever. (laughs) Now, before I tell you about more specific people on this line of Larry's family, I thought I'd briefly go over his family's origins. Keeping in mind that I stopped researching at a certain point because (laughs) I can only do this for so long. I mean, there's some families you can go forever and this is one of those and I had to stop. Mm -hmm. So, Maryland. The Eilers lived in Maryland as early as 1808. The Wagners and Bitemans, these are some of the surnames that are in this family, lived in early 19th century Pennsylvania. One surprised surprise me if they were from Germany originally, but I don't know. The Cowan line lived in mid-18th century New Jersey, and the Beard family came from New York. Oh. Now, the Biteman family married into the Brenner family, and the original immigrants were Michael Brenner and his wife Rachel Haverstock from Germany. And the Cowans married into the Scottish family of the Macphersons around 1805. The first Macpherson in this family that we know I know about was William, who arrived in the colonies between 1730 and 1750. Mm-hmm. So there are several lines I haven't mentioned yet. Some I'll mention below. Some I'll never get to because that's how deep this family goes. Wow. So the line I was able to find going back the furthest was the Beals family. I was able to find the name of Larry's 11th (gasps) great-grandparents. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) This is far back. Robert Beals, who was born around 1574, and his wife, Mary Kernan, who was born around 1603. Oh, my Where were they born? They were born in England. Okay. And it was their son, William Thomas, who was born in 1625, who came to the colonies before 1682 with his son, John Jacob Beals, and settled in Pennsylvania.
1: Oh my gosh! Wow, that's crazy. Good work, Denise.
0: <laughs> well, there's a lot of people who've researched this line. So when you run into a family that's been well researched, it's helpful because mm-hmm. they, especially if they have document, they've documented where they found their information. Mm-hmm. I did find an interesting write up about Thomas Beals, the seventh great granduncle of Larry, born in 1719 at Chester County, Pennsylvania. He was the son of John Beals and Sarah Bowater. Both born in the late 17th century and Larry's eighth great grandparents it turns out the family were Quakers really yes or as they called themselves friends fascinating. that is fascinating a society have we of ever
1: had a Quaker serial killer
0: yet he well he wasn't a Quaker serial killer but I'm not I don't know but I'm just saying know. like in general
1: I don't if think so like
0: They're very peaceful so I I would be kind of shocked. I would be as well, but now I'm curious. I'm going to look that up. Okay. According <laughs> to a document I found posted on Find a Grave, and, and what drove me nuts about this document is it didn't have the the source it came from. Mm-hmm. You could tell it came from a book. I could tell what the book was about, but I couldn't find what book it was from. But anyhow, from this, sor- this um, document... Thomas was the first friends minister to cross the Ohio Mm. River. Mm. After he moved with his family to North Carolina, he and a few other friends would go and meet with the Shawnee. Mm. It turns out that on one such trip, they passed by a fort on their way and were later arrested on suspicion of conspiring with the hostile Indians, quote unquote. Mm. Before he went to trial, the soldiers asked him for a sermon since he was a preacher. It seems he converted at least one and never went on trial, but was released with his party. He died in 1801. On his tombstones are the words, first Quaker missionary to the Indians in the Northwest Territory.
1: Interesting.
0: Because that was Northwest back then. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Wow. So, but I do believe this book was a a history of the Quaker people in Ohio. That's all I can gather from. Now, John Beals III, this is Larry's seventh great-grandfather, was the brother of Thomas, would also move to North Carolina with his family. His wife, Larry's seventh-great-grandmother, was Margaret Hunt. And Margaret was a cousin of anti-slavery leader John Woolman. And John Woolman wrote many anti-slavery writings, still had in Mm -hmm. regard to this day, and some at a couple of Ivy League schools in their collections,
1: Mm -hmm. next to
0: Ben Franklin's writings. So. Wow! Now Larry also descends from the Gronendijk family. The family originated from the Netherlands.
1: Okay, really quick,
0: go ahead. Gronendijk. I think that's how it's spelled. I it Gron- mean, pronounced Gronendijk. Gronendijk. G R O E N E N D Y K E. I feel there's a good joke in there somewhere. There probably is, but the name translates to mean "green dike." Interesting. Mm -hmm. okay
1: and by dyke we mean the thing that holds back water
0: yes we mean the thing that holds back water
1: excellent because we would never use that word as we are not like in that particular community
0: and that word was not used in that context back at the time that they had the last name (gasps) i would i would think not so onward so his fifth great-grandfather was james gronendike born 1770 in new jersey He would be the first in this line to make their way to Indiana, where James died in 1836 at Connorsville. James first married Johanna Hagerman in New Jersey around 1800. They would have eight children. Johanna died in Attica, Indiana in 1825 at the age of 45. Mm. James remarried soon after to Barbara Buck, and they would have six children. So James was the father of 14. Oh my God.
1: Well, it's not like he had to do a lot for that, you know.
0: Right. <laughs> it was all on his wives. Wow. Now, with that out of the way, let's dig into some more specific information about Larry's family, notably the Islers to start.
1: Okay. I'm right. Larry's
0: father, George Howard Jr., was unsurprisingly the son of George Howard Sr., a man born in Hagerstown, Maryland, in 1904. Sr.'s family would move to Crawfordsville, Indiana around 1905. At the age of 20, Sr. married Vivian Naomi Cowan, just 16 and pregnant with George Jr. in March 1924. Mm. George Jr. was born five months later. On his first certificate, it is noted that George Sr.'s occupation was student. Wow. Mm. The couple would live with Sr.'s parents until at least 1940 with their growing family. Wow. So they get married in 24 and they're still living with them in 1940 wow george senior worked as a pressman for a printing company and the couple would soon go from their unexpected firstborn to parents of eight children four boys four girls the last three born between 1940 and 1945 but it seems the marriage was not necessarily a happy one mm. <laughs> after 40 years of marriage the couple would divorce wow waited until the yeah. kids were out of the house yep kids were gone But it still just blows my mind that they can be married for 40 years. And yeah, George would remarry sometime before his death in 1987 to Ruth Shank. Now, George Sr. George Sr. So this is Larry's grandfather was the middle child of three sons. He had an older brother, Jackson or Jack, and a younger brother, Clayton Chamberlain Jr., And I found quite the entertaining story about Jack that appeared in the Indianapolis Star on November 21st, 1923. So, of course, I have to share it. I I just want to make a a quick comment here.
1: This family is in the newspapers a lot. It is. I mean, that's fascinating to me that they seem to just make the news wherever they go.
0: Now, a lot of it, sometimes it's because it's a local paper, but they were... These were not the poorest family members necessarily either. Mm-hmm. Some of them were fairly prominent. Um, some mm-hmm. family members, family, and I didn't get into it, but there was at least one family line that went back and they were quite wealthy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Wow. So here's a headline for you about Jack Eiler. Bridegroom forgives loss of her suit adornment. Recently returned from a honeymoon, the Shorn chic appeared in city court yesterday as the plaintiff in an assault and battery case against two young men he named as the shearers of one side of his mustache and one sideburn. George Crofts, 19 years old, the plaintiff charged Jack Eiler, 22 years old, and William Burkett, 21 years old, with tying him up and damaging his appearance.
1: Oh my God.
0: Yeah. Crofts, however, told Judge Wilmoth that he had changed his mind about prosecuting the two young men and that the case was diminished And the case was dismissed on condition that Eiler and Burkett buy Crofts and his wife a wedding present. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. So there's a little bit of troublemaking in the Eiler family back then.
1: I'm seeing that.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Jack would marry but had no children. Brother Clayton, on the other hand, was the father of six with only one boy. Wow. Father of these three sons was Dr. Clayton Chamberlain Eiler. Clayton was born in 1877 at Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, where he would grow up. He left to attend dental college at the University of Maryland, where he graduated in 1898 at the age of 21. Wow! As he was off at school, Ida Mae Wagner, five years his junior, was growing up in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, an area her family had settled in before the 19th century. By 1900, though, her family had moved to Hagerstown, Maryland, just 12 miles from Waynesboro, Pennsylvania. The couple likely married in 1900 or 1901. I was unable to find an accurate marriage record. I did find a marriage record indicating they married in September 1920 in Elkhart, Indiana. Now, this leads me to believe that they may have divorced and remarried, or they lost a marriage record and married again to provide one. I don't know. Interesting. But I'm certain that Ida is the mother of their sons. That much I do know. Wow. Clayton Sr. died in 1962 at the age of 84, Ida in 1972 at the age of 90. Now, going back, I noticed a few incidents that really grabbed my attention. It began to feel like the family might be a bit accident prone or have bad luck. For example, Dr. Clayton's death was caused after tripping over a chair and breaking his hip. Granted, that's not uncommon for somebody who's 84 to fall and break a hip and die, but that's just the tip We'll start with Adam Eiler, Larry's third great-grandfather. Adam would die at the age of 68, but not due to your typical causes of death. This is from the Adams County Independent, and this is out of Pennsylvania, on October 1st, 1910. Death of Adam Eiler. Adam Eiler, a native and for many years a resident of Adams County, died Thursday morning of last week at the home of his son, George L. Eiler, in Waynesboro aged 86 years 9 months and 13 days death was due to concussion of the brain as the result of a fall which the man sustained sunday evening in stepping from a moving trolley car <gasps> yeah mr eiler struck the back of his head a hard blow on the macadam on the macadam street and was rendered unconscious Some Mm -hmm. hopes were entertained early in the week for his recovery, but at noon Wednesday, he grew suddenly worse and did not regain consciousness. Oh my God. Mr. Eiler was born December 9th, 1814 in Adams County. And by the way, Adams County is where Gettysburg is just to give you an idea. Um, He was the son of the late Jacob Eiler, one of the most respected farmers of this community. He spent his boyhood days on the farm with his parents when yet a young man, he married Miss Laura Jane Kaufman, herself a resident of Adams County. Mr. and Mrs. Eiler lived in Adams County for about a year after their marriage, and then moved to near Emmitsburg and operated one of the largest farms in the section of the country. After a stay of a few years, they then moved to Shirleysburg, Huntington, Huntingdon County. Geez, Shirleysburg, Huntingdon oh. County, where Mr. Eiler engaged successfully in the livery business for nearly five years. In 1857, they went to Waynesboro, and there Mr. Eiler established himself in the livery business and continued in it until two years ago when he retired. The funeral was held in Waynesboro Saturday afternoon. Wow. Now, Adam's father, Jacob, also had unfortunate luck leading to his death, and I found this in the new Oxford item dated January 11, 1889. Drowning Accident The Emmitsburg Chronicle says, Mr. Jacob Eiler, a venerable citizen of Friends Creek Valley, attended a protracted meeting at the Church of God in that valley on Monday evening. And by the way, this Monday evening is New Year's Eve that they're talking Mm. about. He started from the church for home, a distance of about one quarter of a mile at nine o'clock. And it is supposed he got bewildered and turning in the wrong direction, fell from a large rocky precipice into Friends Creek and was drowned. The water at that Mm. point being about eight feet deep. Oh, my gosh. His hat and overcoat were found caught in some bushes at that spot and must have been pulled off by the fall. Mr. Eiler, who was over 80 years of age, lived with his wife near where the accident happened. And Mrs. Eiler, being alone at the time, was unable to give an alarm at his not returning until the next morning when a search was instituted and his dead body found in the water just below the precipice.
1: Oh, my
0: gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Ida Mae Wagner Eiler's father, John Franklin Wagner, and this would be Larry's second great grandfather, had some of the same luck, but it did not result in his death, thank goodness. But in 1934, at the age of 81, Jay Frank was pulling a small wagon filled with coal as he crossed Chambersburg Street in Gettysburg. As he did so, a car hit him, causing J. Frank several lacerations on his head and hands. Luckily, the car wasn't going very fast and Jay Frank lived, although his cart did not survive. Mm. Jay Frank, though, would die five years later at age 86 at the Adams County Almshouse.
1: Oh, that's very sad.
0: That is very sad. I mean, it's like a double whammy. Wow. <laughs> but wait, there's more about this family we haven't <laughs> even touched. It's time to talk about murder again or murder most foul. We'll start with the murder of James Gully, Larry's second great granduncle on his mother's side. James was married to his second great grand aunt, Delaney Jane Day of Hawkins County, Tennessee. They married quite young. James was eighteen and Delaney fifteen in eighteen forty-nine. When the Civil War started, James enlisted in the Eighth Tennessee Infantry Regiment for the Confederacy. In 1862 or 1863, he was severely wounded and no longer served, returning home where he likely completed his recovery. And the following information I found was from Persia to Piedmont Life and Death in Vaughn's Brigade by by Donahue Bible. Okay, And, And this is concerning James Scully's death. The military trial of John Kite, Confederate soldier, was held before a U.S. military commission at Knoxville, Tennessee, June of 1865. Notes of the testimony of Delaney Jane Gully of Hawkins County, Tennessee are given. The prisoner on trial was the younger John Kite. James Gully died 7th of January, 1865. The rebels ran after him and killed him. He was afraid of Jim Bill Owen Scout. John Kite was armed and among the men who ran after James Gully. James Gully was lying in the house in the bed. He had just come in the house a little bit. He ran up a hill away from his house. Delaney followed after the men, but they were shooting. About 15 minutes later, she found James lying on a log shot in the head twice. Mm. Bill Owens Band had been there three times twice at her house and once at Widows West in Whitehorn, Tennessee. They were hunting men, taking horses and everything else they could get their hands on. John Kite was with the group at Mrs. West's. They killed John West. When the men went after James Gully, they said, shoot him, shoot him. Oh my gosh. John, James Gully had no weapon with him when he was shot. There were about 27 men mounted. As the men pursued James up the hill, some of the band found clothing that Delaney hid, and the others pursued James Gully and killed him. They had talked the night before about killing him if they could find him. Wow. And they were convicted, so. Oh, my gosh. And there's more. We're going to talk about Mary Louise Dammer. Mary's mother was Dorothy Wilhite, a distant Wilhite cousin to Larry. In fact, Mary was Larry's fourth cousin, two times removed. So this is a very distant relation that I stumbled on. Okay. And her story ended up hitting the papers, like, in a big way at the time. On the night of November 24th, 1935, Mary Louise Stammer had stayed home while her parents were out and she stayed home to watch her two younger siblings. As she was sitting in a room, um, there was a man by the name of Elton Stone who stood outside her window and then shot her in the head. Oh, my God. Yeah. He then broke into the house, beat Mary, stripped off all her clothes, then dragged her to a bedroom. He was interrupted and fled when her mother arrived at the house. Mary's father, Walter Stammer was a well-known attorney in California described as a leading attorney in Fresno where the family lived. And Elton Stone would go on to say that he would know like Stammer would know why he did this to his daughter, but Walter Stammer had no idea who this man was.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. Now for another distant relative, third cousin twice removed also via the Wilhite family. Ruth Van Cleve, who was born in Attica, Indiana on February 22, 1906. In 1924, she married Paul Hottinger and they would have two children. However, the marriage did not work out. Paul filed for divorce in early 1934 with the claim that Ruth would stay out all night. He requested custody, something I believe he got. Ruth turned around and married Charles Cast a month or so after the divorce. Charles was employed at a factory, and in 1935, part of his right hand was blown off in an explosion at the factory he worked in.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah. Um, Due to sepsis, they had to amputate the whole hand.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Three years later, in October 1938, Ruth was suddenly dead. The authorities declared her death a suicide, but... Well, I'll read the story and find out what you think, because to me, this does not sound like a suicide. Okay. And I think somebody got off, got away with murder. Mm -hmm. This is from the Noblesville, Indiana Ledger on October 4th, 1938. Woman dies, self-inflicted rifle wound. That got my attention first, rifle wound.
1: That's very challenging.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. The body of Mrs. Ruth Cast, age 32, was found early Monday morning in her home with a bullet wound in the right temple. Dr. Robert L. Armstrong, Madison County Coroner, who investigated, returned a verdict of suicide. Now, a gun, I can see that, but the right temple with a rifle?
1: And you I... have to operate it with your toes.
0: Yeah, so I've heard of people shooting themselves with a rifle. It doesn't happen very often, but usually it's in front of them. Mm hmm. So they can use their feet or something else to rig it. But the right?
1: Well, I mean, if they have their head down, maybe.
0: I I don't know. Mrs. Cass was found dead by the husband, Charles Cass, when he returned to the home about 3.40 a.m. Monday. Ah. Uh-huh. Ah. Dr. Armington said death occurred around 10 p.m. Sunday. A note discovered near the woman was addressed to the husband and indicated that her act was motivated by marital troubles. Mm. A 22 caliber rifle found near the body was the instrument which produced death. Cass told local authorities that he and his wife had been having trouble. When he found the body of his wife, he called police, he said, and they reported the case to the coroner. And um, the woman was last seen about 9 p.m. by neighbors about one hour before her death. I just find that highly suspicious. Yes. Oh, my like, gosh. Why is he out so late
1: mm-hmm. on a Sunday night? Mm-hmm.
0: And I Tough believe, night. I, I'm going to have to double check this really quick. I think he got remarried very quickly after. Oh, I hate him. Oh, I do have this. Yes, he did. So, and this is why I'm even more suspicious. He got married to uh, Rosinelle Belzer around November 2nd, 1898. 18- 1938. So she died October 2nd. He marries within a month.
1: Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, so, that's suspicious. That's suspicious. Buried. Wow. Okay. okay, let me tell you if I die and my husband remarries within the month, mm-hmm. somebody investigate. First, I'll oh, yeah. investigate who he is because I'm not married. But <laughs> next. Somebody ask some questions for the love of God. Yeah.
0: Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm like, just if there's any doubt of my death, if anything seems remotely suspicious, give mm-hmm. me an autopsy. I don't care. And I want to yeah. look for fibers. I want you to look the whole works. Uh-huh. Because Amen, I figured... sister. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, that's not all. There is one more case of murder in this family. This one is a much closer relation to Larry. And, well, you'll see. Helen Wagner, born in 1909 in Hagerstown, Maryland, was the daughter of Mervyn Wagner and Nettie Ray Metcalf. Mervyn was the brother of Larry's great grandmother, Ida May Wagner, making Helen his first cousin twice removed. And sadly, Helen was orphaned by the age of eight, with her oh mother dying when she was around one or two, and her father dying of tuberculosis in 1917. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's awful.
1: Wow. There's just like a lot of tragedy, you know? Yes, a lot in
0: this family. Wow. In April 1925, at the age of 15, Helen married 18-year-old Percy Eicher. One year later, they had son Percy Jr. Around 1927, Helen started having health problems with her lungs. She was eventually diagnosed with tuberculosis, but I think they thought there were some other underlying issues. And she was diagnosed with tuberculosis in February 1928 and sent to a sanitarium a month later. But she only remained there for three days.
1: Please don't tell me they sent her to the place where the bitch was starving people.
0: No. Okay, no. good. Okay. It was a sanitarium for those with lung issues. I had I had a flashback. And the doctor Sorry. said, you know, you, you need to stay here to get healthy. And she left anyway.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Then on July 10th, 1928, their lives were shattered when Percy Sr. was shot on the right side of his chest. Who killed Percy? From the testimony at the trial, Helen said she heard rumors that Percy had been unfaithful, but refused to believe them. Apparently, at least according to Helen, Percy confessed his infidelity on July 7th. So this is three days before Percy was dead oh my gosh she claimed to have contacted the young woman he slept with who had his name on a list of 24 other men she had been intimate with in an effort to have her remove his name from the list oh my god it's it's a quite detailed story she gives was
1: she blackmailing him or something and that's why the the, the wife wanted the name off the list or
0: that i don't know that wasn't clear Okay. And it's not clear that what she was saying was the truth either.
1: Ah, okay.
0: She claimed she loaded a shotgun on the morning of July 10th, walked into the bedroom, then shot at the head of the bed, not to kill Percy, but to scare him so he would stop seeing the other woman. <gasps> then oh, Helen no. claimed to leave the room, reload the shotgun, and returned. Now Percy was sitting up on the edge of the bed. Now he's awake.
1: Yeah, I'd be awake too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. She said that he grabbed the barrel of the gun when it accidentally went off oh my god Hmm. wow please tell me that she was
1: tried and hung for murder
0: well this is you know the trial on august 30th helen was convicted of murder and sent to prison in philadelphia for five to ten years
1: five to ten years for murder yes was the did they say he had it coming or something i mean that feels like a very i, blank I, sentence I think it's murder. because
0: she was a pretty young woman okay
1: yeah, I remember when that shit used to work for me too. And she
0: was an orphan, and yeah. She would die, though, four years later at the age of 22.
1: <gasps> oh my God. From her lung
0: condition. And I'm not, they didn't say if it was tuberculosis. And mm-hmm. just the way it was phrased, it's likely that that's what it was.
1: And how many children did they have at
0: that point? They had one, Percy Jr. But even okay. more tragic is little Percy Jr. died in 1935 after developing scarlet fever and diphtheria. Oh, no. He was just eight, just a month shy of his ninth birthday.
1: Oh, that's awful.
0: Yeah. It's so sad. Now, I know how you hate ending on a sad note like that. So I didn't yes. want to do that to you. <gasps> is there a postmaster involved? No po- postmasters this time. But okay. I do have a happy kind of note, a, a great okay boost. So Mary Louise Stammer's great-grandfather was Eliezer Wilhite, Larry's first cousin once removed. He was married twice. After the death of his first wife, he married Mary Mitchell Holloway, 11 years his junior, in Crawfordsville, where they were both from. Um, and they got married in 1861. Mary soon became known as Mary Holloway Wilhite. Hmm. The couple had four children, including a son named Stanton. And he the son was named after Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Oh,
1: I like that.
0: Eliezer was a tailor, and he knew who Mary was, probably before marriage, long before he met her. And there's every indication that he never tried to stop her and actually was very supportive of her. You see, even as a young girl in the 1830s and 1840s, Mary believed women had rights that were denied to them. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. Yes. She was a feminist? She was an early feminist.
1: Oh, as I a teen,
0: that. she took things further by selling subscriptions to a women's rights publication called Woman's Advocate. Wow. In 1854, after saving her money, she enrolled as a student at Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania in 1854 in Philadelphia. Wow. In 1856, she became the first woman from Indiana to graduate from a medical college.
1: Oh my gosh, I love Mm -hmm. this story. This is awesome.
0: I knew you'd love this story. After she graduated, she returned to Crawfordsville, where, as I mentioned, she would marry Eliezer and practice medicine. While practicing medicine, she also took it upon herself to create a children's home after discovering the condition of children in the county almshouse. Okay. So she established the Montgomery County Children's Home. Oh my gosh, wow. Her belief in the rights of women never wavered, nor did the support of her husband. I'm sure the fact that she was barred from joining medical associations just because she was a woman didn't hurt to motivate her. Yeah. She would not stop the fight to bring rights to women. As such, she co-organized the Women's Suffrage, or women's suffrage Association of Montgomery County in 1869. And in that same year, arranged a woman's suffrage wow. convention featuring Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Mary Livermore, and Susan B. Anthony as speakers. That's fantastic. By 1880, she was the vice president of the Indiana Equal Suffrage Association. In 1880, she organized the Indiana Equal Suffrage Association Convention in Crawfordsville.
1: Oh my gosh. Did she did she live long enough to see women get the right to vote?
0: She did not because Mary predeceased seized her husband in 1909, just days after turning 61. Oh, my gosh. Yeah.
1: Oh, she got it so close. Oh. I know.
0: I looked to see if any of her kids or grandkids had gone to do stuff like that, and I couldn't Mm -hmm. find any evidence of that. Okay. But wow! what an inspiration.
1: Yeah, absolutely. A kick-ass woman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Like Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, only
0: real. Yes. I do have some random notes about the tree George Eiler Jr., that is Larry's father, his uncle, Bob, had two kids. At least one of them joined the marching band in high school. Go marching band. I'm a former band geek. I
1: I played a flag.
0: (laughs) And Bob became a dedicated band parent and booster for the band. (laughs) He he was so dedicated that he continued volunteering with the high school marching band long after his kids finished high school. (laughs) I love that. <laughs> in fact, at one point, and possibly to this day, there was a marching band award named after him at the school.
1: I love that. That's big hearts for me. I love mm-hmm.
0: that. Now, as I said earlier, George Sr.'s brother, Clayton, so this would be Larry's granduncle, had four daughters and a son. Well, one of those daughters was Sister Rosemary, a member of the Sisters of Providence based in St. Mary in the Woods in Terre Haute, Indiana. <gasps>
1: I love the sisters of Providence. They were my teachers in high school. Oh, oh they my were? gosh. Yeah, yeah. That's so Sister cool. Sister Margaret Quinlan, man, shout out.
0: Well, oh, not only gosh. was a religious life her calling, but also education. She was a school oh. principal in nineteen eighty eight. At that time she had worked in education for thirty-five years.
1: Oh my god, where was she? Um where was she the principal?
0: I'd have to look that up for you and okay. but I will post the article about her on the website
1: how exciting okay that's super cheerful i love that
0: and there are a lot of people in stories i did not have time to cover um there were several more ancestors and relations of larry who served in the military like jacob miller wilhite his third great grandfather served in union forces during the civil war as Mm -hmm. part of the 135th indiana infantry where he helped guard the railroad lines in tennessee and alabama but only for 100 days and his grandfather larry's fifth great-grandfather enlisted as a private in the virginia militia during the revolutionary war fought and fought in the siege of yorktown in october 1781 one where george washington was present and that is the family tree of larry william eiler
1: oh my gosh excellent job denise oh my gosh i have to say can you picture larry eiler's ancestors looking Mm -hmm. down on him And going, what the actual fuck, Larry? What the actual fuck? Because look at all of these amazing people that he comes from. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, this is one of those where you go, okay, yes, he was abused. And that can flip Mm -hmm. a switch. You know, there's a lot going on there. But I'm like, it's astonishing. It's just astonishing.
0: Yeah. It's just so confusing where it came from. But before we come to an end, I want to ask you a question.
1: (gasps) I have an answer. I hope they match. Are you reading or watching anything new? Other than TikTok. Other than TikTok.
0: Well, I know you love the
1: TikTok. Two of my favorite shows are back on and in season. So Call the Midwife and The Great (laughs) British Baking Show.
0: Yeah, I'm back to watching those. How about you? Um, I'm actually been busy reading again. (laughs) I've read uh, like 70 books this year so far. Good on you. um, Right now I'm reading the second in a series by Ray Carson called Crown of Embers. Mm -hmm. It's a YA book. Nice. And it's really good. But I just finished this book that I got. So I have Amazon Prime and you know how they have the first reads. Oh, yeah. And you get a free book, you Uh know, if you have Amazon Prime. Well, I chose The Conspiracy of Mothers by Colleen Van... I think that's how you say her name. Oh my gosh, the book blew me away. It was so good. And she's a debut author. This is her first book. Really? And it takes part in apartheid South Africa. Well, or right at the edge of the end of it, 1994. Okay. When the the vote's about to happen. And all these elements are coming up together. And these, oh, it's just so good wow and her writing is spectacular so as soon as i saw that read the description on the book i was like oh my gosh i can't wait to read this and i tagged her i found her on there and i i friend her quite i i followed her and she followed me back i mean she didn't have that many people following her yet because she's not that known yet because it's her debut book (laughs) Oh my gosh,
1: that's so cool! It's called "The Conspiracy of Mothers." The Conspiracy of Mothers. And oh my it's gosh!
0: Amazing.
1: Okay, I'm gonna look that up because I'm always looking for something good to read. Yeah, I mean so. it's not
0: the typical book I read. I mean I read different things, but this one just caught my attention. The I I I'd like to say main character, but Yolanda. It, it starts off she's left. She's in living in Kentucky. Okay. And. Mm-hmm she feels this urge to go back to South Africa and it gets into why she left. And she has a daughter there that's being raised by her mother and she had left her baby there and she's going back. And then the mother's going on her own way and yeah. And it deals with race and you learn a little bit more about there's stuff about, I mean, I thought I knew more about South Africa than I did. Wow. Okay. I'm looking
1: I'm looking at the description. It looks amazing. And it has 47 reviews. It has Mm -hmm. 354 ratings. And it's rated at a 4.54.
0: Yeah, I gave it five stars and I rarely give out five stars. Okay, I'm gonna get that. That looks really good. It's so good. Thank you for the rating. I can't stop from Yeah. And otherwise, I mean I'm watching I just started watching Dairy Girls. Which is really funny.
1: Oh, fun. Yeah, that's a fun show. That's a fun show. I have so, to admit, I couldn't, like, get into it. But, you know, it's got funny parts to it. I see why people like
0: it. But, I mean, I, I it's one of those shows where I watch every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And it's nice because you can pick it up and it's funny and then you go on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I love a couple of the actresses from it that I've seen in other things. Especially the one who's on Bridgerton. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's so good. Oh, my gosh. She's adorable. So. Mm-hmm.
0: That's all I've got. So, Oh my gosh, was, Denise. This was great. Oh my yeah, gosh. We'll get together again in a couple weeks. I can't remember who we're doing next. Let me look really quick. I mean, I've done the research for everybody. I just need to write it all up. Um, I'll do my homework this week, I swear. I'll send you stuff. I always do. Just so you guys know on here, I'm always sending her stuff. And I, she does her own research, but I always send her something just in case I find an article from that time period that gives mm-hmm. it a different spin. It gives her Sometimes it gives more information that you get... Oh it's yeah, gotten watered down over the years. Oh yes, the Spengali of Minneapolis, Harry T. Hayward, is who we're oh, covering next.
1: Wow, that's a, well. It's time we did something about Minnesota because that's an illusion of niceness.
0: <laughs> that's what we got for you today, and I mean now. And then we'll see. You. We'll see you. You'll hear from us again in two weeks. And if you guys have suggestions for the show, please let us know. We're on social media everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Murderous Roots. Just look us up. We're there.
1: Have a great week, y'all.
0: Bye. Thank you for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. You can also find us at MurderousRoots.com. That's M-U-R-O-T. D E R O U S R O O T S dot com, where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed.